Hello, and welcome to the Other Minds podcast. I'm Joseph Bohegan. Other Minds, founded in 1993 in San Francisco by Charles Amerkanian and Jim Newman, is devoted to championing the most original voices in new and experimental music. On this season of the podcast, we're talking with the featured composers from our 26th Other Minds Festival, which will take place on October 13th to 15th, 2022, at the Great Star Theater in San Francisco. Today, I'm joined by composer, sound poet, radio and record producer, and Other Minds executive and artistic director, Charles Amerkanian. Amerkanian is a leading American practitioner of electroacoustic music and tech sound composition. He is widely known for his live and fixed media works utilizing speech elements in rhythmic patterns resembling percussion music. His later electroacoustic music incorporates ambient sounds modified with digital sampling. Recent CD releases of his music are Loudspeakers and Miatsum. A DVD of his performance works in collaboration with artist Carol Law, Hypothetical Moments, is set for release in 2022. Welcome to the podcast, Charles. Nice to be here, Joey. Your piece, Ratchet Attach It for 10 Percussionists, which was premiered last year at the Spitalfields Festival in London, will receive its U.S. premiere at Other Minds 26. And we both share a background with former lives as a percussionist in Fresno, California. And it seems like this piece is quite indebted to your background as a percussionist. So could you tell us about that connection? Well, you know, the concept of uh, a steady pulse or, or driving rhythms in music is a very strong one. And I had grown up uh, learning to play classical piano. And when the, the opportunity came along to join a orchestra, I volunteered because at least I could read rhythms, and that's all you had to read to perform on a snare drum or a bass drum. And I got the job. Now, this was in the fifth grade, so it doesn't really count, but it was uh, the diversion away from the uh, 19th century piano repertoire that gave me a kind of love for modern music also because percussionists get to play in a lot of contemporary music, whereas in the past they were limited to, let's say, timpani or fewer instruments than that. In, a, in an orchestral piece. So, and then my experience in the marching band at Fresno High School was really exciting for me because I, I could get to be on the field with the, the group and uh, we would, uh, you know, have everybody watching us during the halftime of football games. Those are the days when people actually watch the halftime shows. <laughs> <laughs> now they're expunged from public view on television. The fun thing for me was to compose special cadences that would end on the wrong foot. In marching band procedures, you have uh, the first beat on your left foot, the offbeat on your right foot. And so we would always play each cadence twice, as is the custom, but instead of having eight bars and another eight bars for the two cadences, we'd have seven and a half and eight and a half so that we would end on the wrong foot as we started this second repetition of the cadence. And at first this threw the band members off a lot and then they thought it was kind of a mark of 
superior intelligence when we went up <laughs> against other bands in a parade. So I took a couple of lessons from uh, a man named Edwin Jackson, who was a percussion instructor in Fresno, and he sent us to a camp at Long Beach State at one point, and we really got involved in some of the more complicated drone cadences that had been composed. And um, by then I was at Fresno State in the marching band, and the uh, experience again was a lot of fun because I discovered through Jackson the idea of percussion ensemble music. He had a recording of percussion music by John Cage, Lou Harrison, Henry Cowell, and others. And it was through that that um, I started to become interested in composing chamber music. And doing it for anything that you could strike was a, a lot of fun because you could invent instruments. You could bring in... I made a xylophone of license plates, for example. Delaware was the highest pitch. It had the <laughs> smallest license plate. And uh, some of the others were... Uh, a lot lower, but they had been discarded. I found them in, on cars in junk shops. And then we'd get brake drums and other things. That had been done in the past by Cage and Harrison when they were young, also in the Bay Area. And it was um, just very stimulating to realize that any sound could be made into a piece of art music. At what point in your life did you become aware of Cage and Harrison, that kind of percussion music? Well, I had, uh, by accident, become aware of John Cage when I was five years old, and my father brought home a 78 RPM album of two discs, and in it was music by Alan Hovannis and John Cage. But on the cover was a, a shop in Lower Manhattan, a drawing of a shop that had rugs hanging out the window, and the rugs were Oriental rugs. and Presumably, that was a reference to Hovannis, whose music um, occupied three of the four sides of this set. And my father thought he was bringing me some Armenian folk music to listen to. <laughs> and when we put it on, it sounded rather strange because the piano was imitating the kanun from Middle Eastern music. And the fourth side was prepared piano music by John Cage, played by Maro Ajemian. So many Armenians on this record. There's Maro Ajemian, there's Alan Hovannis, there's John Cage, who was an Odar. He was not Armenian, but he seemed to associate with him, <laughs> so he must be a good guy, I thought. And then there was the producer, who I found out later was George Avakian, the famous Columbia Records producer, who was the brother-in-law of... Maro Ajemian, and who was the only person who had the vision to commit some of this music then pretty much ostracized from the classical music world as, as legitimate. And so these records were released and they sold a few copies. This was 1947, and I discovered them around 1950. And uh, it made a big impression on a five-year-old, I can tell you that, especially the prepared piano. And the fact that Hovannis would have running patterns with florid melodies, and he would just cut at the end. It would stop. It would not resolve. It would not do anything normal to do with an ending. It was like snipping a piece of wallpaper and 
and you go right through the pattern. <laughs> All the apples and flowers and so forth in the wallpaper are cut. And I thought that was a brilliant sort of strategy as, as a composer. So I often do that myself in my own music. So at that point, when you got that record with the Cajun Hovhannis, had you already started taking piano lessons? Yes, I, I had just started. I was studying with my mother's sister, Lorraine, who had just gotten back from USC, where she finished a master's degree. You have to understand, in those days, piano was the thing that you studied, not guitar. And uh, that was left over from the 30s and 40s, I suppose, in American culture. But the world I grew up in was with uh, my mother and her three sisters, all of whom were classical music majors at Fresno State. So that was what we listened to in our house. And um, it was very different from the experience of a lot of other kids. But it served me well. I've always valued that deeper background into the European tradition. And when I came to discover Lou Harrison and Henry Cowell and what they had done with the Western tradition, which is to say incorporating aspects of Eastern culture. And it just made a kind of perfect blend for me. And I found that I related to that music very strongly. And was it your initiative to start playing percussion? Well, I was sitting in my fifth grade classroom when a lady came in and said, we need a percussionist from the orchestra. Does anybody here read music? And then three of us raised our hands. Mm -hmm. And once we were auditioned, I became fixated on the idea that I had to win this competition. <laughs> and one of my best friends was one of the other guys, and he was very smart, and I figured he'd be able to do better than I. But uh, I was selected and... So it was only partly voluntary. It was just an accident, really. And it was a good accident because the teacher who conducted the orchestra was named Goldie Dockery. Goldie didn't know how to play the snare drum at all. She said, if you want to play a role, hold the sticks over the drum and drop them at the same time. That was it. <laughs> and when I got to junior high school and I realized that is not how it is done... <laughs> I had some catching up to do. Yeah. <laughs> Jumping forward a bit to your time at Fresno State, in Ratchet Attachet, obviously with the title, and we'll talk about one of the movements later, but you've had a long history of writing for Ratchet uh, since you were younger. I think I remember one of your earliest Ratchet pieces, you amplified a Ratchet and slowly turned to the crank, and it reverberated in the hall. So how did you get started with the Ratchet? I probably took one home to practice with it because we might have been using it in a piece for a concert band. And they're small, they're easily portable, and I brought it home. And then I was back at school and I was in my Volkswagen bug about to go in and I started turning the crank on the ratchet. And I realized that when you're in an enclosed space and you're listening very intimately to the sound that this instrument produces, you hear birds chirping in the overtone range. And I had never noticed that in the concert hall. It was an abrasive sound. But I had never heard the birds before. And I realized if I wanted to replicate that in a concert hall, I'd have to close mic the instrument just the way I was listening to it 
with my ear four inches away in, in the car, in this enclosed tiny space. So I composed a piece in which I stood on stage with one microphone and turned the crank and uh, rather slowly because you cannot on these instrumental, these orchestral instrument ratchets that are sold, you cannot make an even rhythm. So as you turn the crank, it jerks forward at each tooth of the ratchet. And that was fascinating in and of itself. So not only was I getting bird overtones, I was getting these crazy irregular rhythms. And so I decided to do various other follow-up iterations of that and uh, ended up finally doing an octet for Ratchets around 2011 after having not composed for the instrument for years. And I, Were you in that performance? Uh, that was the performance at Fresno State? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was one of the Ratchet players. Oh, which Ratchet did you play? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the parts was not returned to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's listen now to an excerpt of Chatter Ratchet from Ratchet Attach It by Charles Amarkanian, performed by the Trinity Laban Conservatoire Percussion Ensemble with conductor Dominic Mercott. opportunity to write for the Spitalfields Festival came along, and I thought, one, I had been listening to drum cadences on a television program that was called Last Chance You. It was about kids that go to junior college, and they really want to play college football, but they're not good enough. But they go to East Mississippi Junior College, or they go to Chabot College here in the Bay Area, and they try to get a videotape together of their playing that will impress somebody in Division One football. And at the beginning of each program, they had this very snappy drum cadence that would be played by whatever college it was, a drum line. I didn't even know what the term drum line was. We never used that term, but it's a big deal now. Mm-hmm. So did, There's a whole movie about it. Is there really? Starring Nick Cannon. Nick Cannon. Yeah. Who's Nick Cannon? <laughs> 
He's the star of the yeah, movie. Yeah, the star of the movie drumline. <laughs> okay, I got to see that. Anyway, it's gotten very sophisticated, these drum cadences, because you have tuned bongos and very adept players who can do wonderful single-stroke roles. We could hardly do them when I was in college. I mean, that was, that was uh, for the advanced people. But it made me realize I had this gut reaction, thinking, God, I really would like to compose something like that again. That was so much fun. And still today, whenever I'm walking around Berkeley and I hear, let's say, the USC band practicing down the street at Albany High School near where I live, they'll before a game, they'll always go over there and, and play. And I'll just, if I hear them, I'll just run over there and watch the drummers because it still gives me a charge. And I thought, well, this is completely irrational. This isn't intellectual. Why am I liking this? <laughs> and uh, I just found it irresistible. So when Errol and Wallen asked me if I wanted to write a piece for the Spitalfields Festival, I um, contacted my friend Dominic Mercott, who lives in London and who is a professor at the Trinity Laban Conservatoire. And he had a whole bunch of young kids in his percussion ensemble. And he said, well, if you write something... I can do it with my group. And I said, oh, well, do you have any ratchets? And he didn't have any ratchets, and he was seriously worried because there is no budget for buying ratchets in his, <laughs> in his conservatoire. <laughs> so I offered to ship eight of mine, and then he, he got shamed, and he went on the Internet and found four ratchets, really cheap, and he got them, and they worked fine. So... The performance was conceived as something for two of my London friends who had been active in uh, contemporary music. One was Rex Lawson, the pianolist, who was a virtuoso at playing other people's music on piano rolls that were cut for the purpose of letting people perform Stravinsky in their home in 1923. It was before radio had hit uh, in the mid-20s and become a big thing, so... And the player piano was a wonderful thing because although people had 78 RPM discs, they had a lot of scratchy sounds on them and they weren't the full range of the piano. If you had a piano roll, you could put it on and listen to a piece played by Rachmaninoff himself with his exact rhythms and pedalings and there was no filter between you and the sound of the instrument. It didn't have this that the 78s always have. So when radio finally came in and uh, by 1930 had sort of taken over as the entertainment of choice in, in the parlor, the player piano gradually disintegrated in popularity and uh, we were left with thousands of piano rolls, most of which Rex Lawson has collected. And he started something with friends called the... Pianola Society in London, and uh, they have concerts, get together and play each other's player pianos with various roles. But there are some roles that are made without the dynamic markings that were originally used by composers, without the pedaling. And those roles are the ones that Rex specializes in. And what you do is you put them in a what looks like an old upright radio console about four feet high. It's, it's called a pianola, or in German it's a four-setzer. People also call it a push-up. You push it up to any piano, and you pedal the console 
it has the roll in it, it has little fingers that push down the keys. This is different from a player piano where you put the roll inside the music stand of the piano and it plays the piano. So Rex has made a specialty of performing the Greek piano concerto just as Percy Granger would have played it, but without a roll that has Granger's dynamics and um, pedaling. So I really feel like it's an instrument that um, kind of got passed by, except for one person, Conlon Nancaro, who took the suggestion of Henry Cowell in a book called New Musical Resources and got some blank player piano rolls that had not been punched, built a punching machine so he himself could put the holes where he wanted them, and uh, had the brilliant idea of having different tempos playing at the same time in different voices on the keyboard. And the way you hear that is that Nancaro would put a particular rhythmic uh, tempo in one range of the piano, let's say from middle C to high C. And then in the high end of the piano, you'd have another tempo, and in the low end, another tempo, and you'd divide the keyboard up so that you could actually hear eight or nine tempos at the same time. And he enabled people to hear the music by writing the same melody and just changing the registration of where it appeared on the instrument. This is a brilliant idea because otherwise it would just be a free-for-all and you wouldn't discern these rhythmic patterns. In fact, he, he called them studies for player piano and before he had gotten to about the sixth or seventh one, he changed from rhythm studies for player piano to studies for player piano. But they were basically studies in rhythm. And so that just demonstrates that the instrument has capabilities that very few people exploited. And I think the funny thing about the player piano rolls is that if you cut them by hand without playing an instrument and having the holes punched by where you were playing, because humans don't play with rigid rhythms. Let's say you take a score and you set it by the punching machine and you mechanically punch in every rhythm very correctly. You get a result that sounds like the role of uh, Armenian piano music that I have in this composition. I should say that Rex took ill and was not able to perform at the concert, and so I had to pre-record all the player piano segments that were intended to be part of the percussion ensemble. And um, the player piano makes, in the case of somebody punching the roll artificially, makes these very rigid uh, decisions that don't sound like a human is playing. And so that's the difference between a role made on uh, a pianola that can actually accept the, uh, the variations in speed of a human performer. So this piece called Hopper Pond is really hilarious. It's a, uh, it's a love song, and it was made for the Armenian market in maybe 1912 or something like that. And somebody in the United States found these in his relative's closet and recorded them and sent them to me when I worked in radio at KPFA in Berkeley. And uh, I decided this would be one of the movements of this particular 
percussion ensemble work, which is in 11 movements. Great. Well, let's listen now to an excerpt of Hopper Popper from Charles Amarkanian's Ratchet Attach It. doing some manipulations of those piano rolls in the tape parts, correct? Yes. In some of the movements, I'll overlay different recordings. It turns out that back in uh, the 90s, uh, I spent three days with Rex Lawson recording on a version of Imperial Grand, some of his favorite rolls. But I asked him, would he be able to alter some things in the performance. For instance, Rex Lawson has two kinds of player piano rolls, ones that have 88 notes from left to right on the on the roll, and others that have only 65 notes across the width of the roll. And the 65-note ones were intended to be played on a less expensive piano that didn't have the full 88 notes. But if you take an 88-note roll and adjust it to uh, the settings of a 65-note roll player, you get everything sounding on the wrong pitches, and it's very funny. So that's one thing you could do. You could also have Rex play a piece of music intended to be a very uh, stately-sounding work at ridiculously fast speeds. So, And you never miss a note. That's the thing. No pianist could play at these speeds, and they would certainly miss notes. So that was another thing you could do. We could also depress the pedal and leave it down 
while playing an entire piece. So we had all these various ways we would record alternate versions of some of these roles. And then I used those in a creation of a piece called Pianola, which also became um, a 40-minute long tape composition. And that's on New World Records now, but it's something I worked on for several years. And uh, I also used a, a Kurzweil synthesizer to sample and play back the notes too. The movement pedestrian of Ratchet Attachet has a special story behind it, correct? With the funeral of JFK? Yeah, that was a very sad event, of course, in the history of our country. And in November of 1963, when President Kennedy was assassinated, his funeral days later was on national television. And uh, literally everything in the country stopped to watch that. The musical thing that struck me the most about it was this very somber drum cadence that was played as his casket was transported through the streets of Washington, D.C. And it was written apparently by a member of the services, maybe an Air Force guy, I can't remember. And he wrote it especially for the occasion, and it had to be repeated hundreds and hundreds of times. And it made such a strong impression on me because I, I never forgot it. What I, what I didn't realize at the time was that there was a an added element in the music that made it more and more somber, which is that all of the field drummers in the military who performed this cadence loosened the heads of their snare drums to deepen the sound so that it sounded more funereal. And all this was news to me that I learned when I began to look back at that cadence and its history. And when I came to compose this piece in 2021, I thought back to that experience and also thought, what could I do with that very somber cadence that... Uh, would expand on its ideas. And so I uh, just changed the length of various roles that would happen. So there would be beats and then roles. And the roles, in my version, get longer and longer each time it's performed so that it's got a kind of additive quality and an unpredictability as to when the role's going to end. Because... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's easier to understand after you've heard it.
have uh, one more question for you, and that's about your titles. Your titles are always very playful. Uh, we have Ticklish Licorice, Hopper Popper, Bum of the Flightle Bee. Those are some of the movements in Ratchet Attach It. How do you come up with those? Uh, well, I, I guess I just close my eyes and think what would, what would be interesting from the audio standpoint. So I'm thinking of the words as sounds rather than simply uh, signifiers. For instance, there's a movement called dominatrix, and it it's a kind of joke because Dominic Mercott, who conducted this piece at its premiere, um, also is a very fine snare drummer and had set to music uh, a difficult piece by Common and Carroll called Piece for Tape, which was a bunch of drum sounds that were cut in little pieces of tape and then reassembled by Nancaro. So Dominic decided he would try to transcribe that and make it into a snare drum solo, and he did. And uh, anybody who could think that way and who could play that way I thought was worth writing a solo for. So I asked him what were some of his favorite licks, and he said, well, I'll give you a recording of some of the things I like to do. And he did, and I sort of uh, pieced them together like Nan Caro's tape piece. <laughs> <laughs> so then I had to come up with a title, and I, I was thinking, Dominic, Dominic. Those are his tricks. Dominic tricks. <laughs> so, <laughs> and to play it, you have to dominate the drum. So it's a, it's a play on dominatrix, but it's Dominic tricks, one word, T-R-I-X. And uh, the last title... Tyrannus Rex <laughs> was uh, due to the fact that Rex Lawson's um, performances that I used in that piece, which I believe were taken from Rachmaninoff, his suite number two for piano, um, Granger's Molly on the Shore, Stormy Weather by Harold Arlen, and uh, all of these are manipulated and played in various arrangements which you wouldn't expect and it had a uh, kind of incessant forward momentum that I had the percussion ensemble accentuate by pounding away starting at the middle of the piece and going to the end so it was rather tyrannical it was like the tyranny of the player piano roll over the percussionists and um, Tyrannus Rex just seemed perfect. <laughs> so um, I have another life as a sound poet, and I do take a lot of inspiration from the work of Gertrude Stein and Clark Coolidge, uh, who was inspired by Stein. And uh, the idea of using words for their sound goes back in Clark's case to Jack Kerouac. If you read Dr. Sachs or On the Road, some of the things that Kerouac does with his phraseology is directly related to jazz drumming and jazz soloists uh, playing riffs. And I think that in some of my sound poetry pieces, I just started from that idea. Write a drum cadence, but don't use drums, use words. And that was uh, part of what I like to do. So the title thing is is just something that 
comes naturally. I don't know. It doesn't come naturally to all composers, but I'm happy for you that it comes naturally to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you made music by amplifying rocks, and I suppose you've had a lot of temptation to make a bad pun about that. Plenty of people have made that pun, but I have refrained. (laughs) (laughs) Rock on, Joey. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, if you'd like to hear Charles Amarconian's Ratchet Attach It, it will be receiving its American premiere at the Other Minds 26th Annual Festival on October 14th, 2022 at the Great Star Theater in San Francisco. Thank you, Charles, for joining me, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Pleasure. Thank you, Joey. This has been an episode of the Other Minds podcast, brought to you by Other Minds. Our 26th festival is October 13th to 15th, 2022, at the Great Star Theater in San Francisco. Join us again next week.